so we are continuing our series of the whole story, right? And the, the big intention of that is to develop kind of a, an interest and an understanding of biblical theology, this like overarching um, narrative and themes that run all throughout the Bible and how everything ties together. And we only have three weeks left, including today. So we've been at this for 12 weeks. Uh, hopefully it's been interesting and enjoyable and some of it has stuck. Obviously we've been moving pretty fast. Um, but here is some of the plan for today. Uh, I just wanna start by reading the summary, okay? Catch us up to where we've been and then we're gonna dive in. So this is the story so far. The story is that God created a kingdom and he's the king. And he made human beings to represent him in this kingdom. Now, Adam and Eve rejected this call, which led to sin and death. But God promised to defeat the serpent through the seed of the woman, who is also the seed of Abraham. Now, through Abraham's family and specifically Judah's royal seed, David, the covenant blessings would come to the world. And because all people, you and I, were in our guilty and deserved death, the sacrifices of the Mosaic law, they revealed more clearly their and our need for a substitute. This would be the suffering servant. Through this servant and the work of the spirit, God would establish a new covenant and he would give lasting life to his people in a new heaven and a new earth, period. That's the Old Testament. New Testament picks up. Jesus is revealed to be the one through whom all of these promises find their fulfillment. First, in his sacrificial death for sin, and then in his victorious resurrection and reign as king. Now, while we're on this slide, notice there's two sentences towards the bottom that are highlighted. First, in the Old Testament, that God's new covenant is that he would give lasting life to his people in a new heaven and a new earth. This was five weeks ago. We looked at Ezekiel chapter 37. It was one of the Old Testament's very first nods and kind of indications that there would be bodily physical resurrection for God's people. That is, he breathes his spirit into people. They would be raised bodily. That was five weeks ago. Today, we're looking at resurrection again, but notice the language is a little bit different. This is in Jesus's sacrificial death and then in his victorious resurrection and reign as king. So what we're looking at, what we looked at five weeks ago was your resurrection. What we're looking at today was, is Jesus's resurrection. And to begin the conversation, we're going to actually start in a peculiar place. We're going to start at the misconception of what winning looks like. The misconception of what winning looks like. Would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 27? This is Matthew 27, verse 37. And I'll set it up while you're turning there. This is in the process of Jesus' crucifixion, he's uh, hanging on a tree. He's been nailed to the cross. And this is what Matthew writes in verse, or chapter 27, verse 37. He says, Over Jesus' head they put the charge or the accusation against him. And it was a sign that read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Skip to verse 39. And those who passed by, they derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Quote, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, then come down from the cross. And so also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders, they mocked him saying, well, he saved others, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. So let him come down now from the cross and then we will believe in him. He trusts in God. So let God deliver him now if God desires him. For 
Jesus said, I am the son of God. Now, my natural assumption is this is not what winning looks like. Being publicly mocked and killed by your enemies. That's not victory. Now, look at the accusation that is being thrown at him, right? If you are the son of God, if you are who you say you are, then use your power. Use the favor of God upon you to do what? What are they asking of him? They're saying, use all of that to save yourself. Save yourself. What this is revealing is there is incredible misunderstanding of what Jesus was there to do, what Jesus' intentions were to accomplish. Because, now interestingly, it wasn't only Jesus' enemies who had this mixed up. It was both Jesus' enemies and his followers who misunderstood this. So uh, go ahead and flip to Luke chapter 24. There are two of Jesus' disciples, and they're walking on the third day after his death. They've witnessed his death. Two and a half days have passed by. It's the third day, and they're walking together. And at this point, Jesus has resurrected. He's come back from the dead, and they don't know it yet, or they've, they've heard rumor of it. And Jesus approaches these two disciples, and he somehow disguises himself supernaturally. He keeps them from recognizing him. And he basically goes up and says, hey, you guys look really sad. What are you sad about? What's going on? And they say, haven't you heard anything? Haven't you heard about Jesus? And Jesus says, no, no, tell me about him. Pick up chapter 24, verse 19. And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, he was mighty indeed in word before God and all the people. And this is how our chief priests and our rulers, they delivered him up to be condemned to death and they crucified him. But we, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. So what's going on here? Both Jesus' enemies and his followers, they assumed that in the moment of Jesus' death, he had failed to redeem Israel. That was the moment of his failure. We had hoped, but it didn't happen. If you're the son of God, come off the cross. The assumption is that he lost. He didn't have the power that he said he had. He didn't have the power that he needed. He claimed to be the son of God, but... He was proven false at the moment of his death. But if you were here last week, what were the last words of Jesus at the moment of his death? Do you remember? It is finished. Not, whoops, miscalculated that one. They got me. No, it is finished. So clearly, he was planning something different than they were anticipating. So if you keep reading in chapter 24, skip to verse 19, or excuse me, uh, skip forward, um, to, and he says this. He says, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He says, you got it wrong. You foolish ones, let me show you. And then he interprets through the prophets and all the scriptures the things concerning himself. You know what another way of saying that is? He taught them biblical theology. He told them the whole story. 
This is why we're spending so much time in this, is because if we, like his early followers, are ignorant of biblical theology, we miss the whole point. So Jesus is saying, you don't get it. Let me go back and show you the overarching narrative, all the promises in the Old Testament and how I'm here to fulfill them. So what Jesus was saying is, if you understand biblical theology, at the moment of his death, Jesus successfully, successfully, paid the penalty of our sin as the suffering servant. At his resurrection, he displayed his full power and victory over death. That means he won. Not he lost, but he won. And as was necessary, all this occurred. This is what we've been doing the last 12 weeks. So here's our final road, or our roadmap for today. We're going to use the wisdom of the New Testament writers to kind of guide us to build an understanding of Jesus' resurrection. And we're going to use three questions to navigate this. Number one, what did Jesus' resurrection prove? Number two, what did Jesus' resurrection accomplish? Did it have an effect? And then three, we're just going to ask, what is Jesus doing now? Because he was resurrected. That means he's alive. Another way of saying that is he's not dead. <laughs> that means he's doing something, right? He's still active in the world. So let's start with the first question. What did Jesus' resurrection prove? Go back with me really quick to Matthew 27 and the denunciation that was thrown at him. If you remember, he said, if you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So Jesus's enemies and his followers, they were disappointed because they were looking at the wrong evidence of Jesus's divinity. If you're the son of God, come down. If you're the son of God, come down. They're looking in the wrong location. And so they wanted him to come off the cross. They said, that's how you will display your divinity. That's how you'll display your power. They essentially wanted him to display himself according to their guidelines. Now, before we move on, I just want to ask, like, have you and I ever been this way? God, if you're real, prove yourself like this. God, if you love me, prove yourself like this. If you blank, you would blank. Has not this been us? But there's great peace and great wisdom that comes when we stop asking Jesus to prove himself according to our standards or our measure or our metric. And instead we say, Jesus, what are your promises? How do you say you will fulfill them? Jesus told his disciples, hey guys, pretty soon I'm going to die. In three days, I'm going to rise again. That's what power looks like. But his disciples transitioned their trust from what Jesus said to their own metric. We had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel, but he died. So we get great peace when we begin to trust his words according to what he says. Now, Paul helps us with this in Romans chapter 1. Paul kind of interprets what happened at the cross. This is Romans chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. It says this. Concerning God's son who was descended from David, according to the flesh, in verse 4, he was declared to be the son of God. How was he declared to be the son of God? He was declared in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by doing what? By his resurrection from the dead. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, there's two important things in this passage that are highlighted on the screen, and we're going to interpret these really quickly. Number one. Uh, Jesus was declared through two things. Number one, that he was descended from David, 
according to the flesh, and two, he was declared to be the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. So, number one, this he was descended from David. This is actually a proof or an evidence of his identity. Because what Paul is saying is that Jesus was descended from David, just like the scriptures said. Remember Luke 24, Jesus went through all the scriptures, teaching them everything that was according to him or that was related to him. And so what Paul is saying is that he was fulfilling God's promise to David. The promise to David was that God would redeem and rescue his people and establish a brand new kingdom. That was the promise to David. And so Jesus is saying, or Paul is saying that Jesus was in alignment with that. He was in alignment with the Old Testament promises. So I want to go back to the story so far with that metric or with that that, uh, view in our eyes. Is Jesus present in these Old Testament promises? Just like Paul is saying, he was descended from David. God created a kingdom and he's the king. He made human beings to represent him in that kingdom. But Adam and Eve rejected this call, which led to sin and death. So God promised to defeat the serpent. Did not Jesus come to defeat the serpent? It would be through the seed of the woman, also known as a human. Was not Jesus human? He would also be of the seed of Abraham, specifically Judah's royal seed, David. If you read the genealogy in Matthew or Luke, you see that Jesus was a direct descendant of David. Now, because all people were guilty and deserved death, are we not? We needed a substitute, someone who would suffer as a servant for us. Did Jesus not suffer and lay down his glory for our sake, serving us? And he would give lasting life to his people in a new heaven and a new earth. Is this not Jesus' goal? To die so that we may live. Now then if we look into the New Testament, that we see that all of these promises find fulfillment first in Jesus' sacrificial death and then in his victorious reign as king. That's what Paul's getting at. Jesus was descended from David. He was fulfilling all of these promises in alignment with God's plan. Now Paul then transitions and says a second thing. He says, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Paul's saying Jesus proved himself simply through like a sheer demonstration of power over sin and death and Satan. So here's what I mean. What he's saying is that Jesus as king, he was the seed of the woman, he paid the price to redeem his people, and then he died. No, he like, died, died, like dead, dead, 100%. But he then came out on the other side of death victorious. Now, play a game of imagine if for a moment. Imagine if God promises to you and all of your friends to defeat death. He promises to breathe new life through his spirit into you, and then he dies. And then he stays dead. In fact, he goes silent. You never hear from him again. I would begin to wonder, was he right? He died, just like everyone else, and goes silent. Did he fulfill his promises? Was he fake? Did he have power over death? And I would have a very hard time trusting that story. 
which is why so importantly, Jesus's resurrection acts as proof of completion. It acts as proof of validity of all of God's promises having been fulfilled. Here's a really quick illustration of, uh, to help us grasp that. Um, imagine a debt, or you have a debt and receipt, right? Uh, so very realistically, uh, Whitney and I, we both went to college, which meant we graduated with student debt. And so we owed a lot of people a lot of money. Now imagine every time we pay that bill, there is no receipt. We send them some cash and we're not sure what happens. Now, real life, I didn't do a very good job of keeping track for a couple years. And so the, the reality was I just like sent some people some money and didn't, I just hoped. I really hope this is paying it down. You know, it's even on auto withdrawal. And so I'm, I'm like no uh, conception of what's occurring. Essentially, it's just going down a black hole. And if you have no proof of payment, that's really confusing, isn't it? Your money just starts to disappear. How much do I owe you? I don't know. How much have I paid you? Not really sure. How much of this is going towards principal? Well, I don't know. <laughs> but imagine the difference when you have a receipt, when you have a statement, when you get the email confirmation. You're solid. You can see the exact state of your debt. You can see the details. You can see confirmation. You can see what you owe. Now, for Whitney and I, when our debt was paid off, I called them and got talked to a person and said, could you please send me a statement showing that our debt is paid in full and that the auto pay is turned off, please. <laughs> and they did. And this, this is the point, is I now had evidence my debt is paid. This is what Jesus' resurrection is for you and I. Jesus' resurrection is the receipt. It's the statement that says, my debt has been paid and here's the proof. This is the evidence. It's not I just sent some money into a black hole, but I sent Jesus paid my debt, and here's the statement of balance. I owe nothing. It has been paid. Death lost. Your auto withdrawal was canceled. Now think about how bolstering this is, that I'm not left in doubt was it accomplished. Jesus actually proved that everything was paid in full. He proved he was the Son of God. He proved that all the Old Testament promises were real. All the Old Testament promises are being fulfilled. They were accomplished. That's what he proves. He proves that he defeated death. He proves, or I'm sorry, that slides a little bit early, but he proves that he was the Son of God fulfilling all the promises and he proves that he actually did it. He has a receipt showing the debt was paid. Now that answers the question, what did Jesus's resurrection prove? Proved he was the son of God fulfilling promises and it proved that he actually did it. He had power over death. Our second question then is, what did Jesus's resurrection accomplish? And it did accomplish two things and there's more, but here's the emphasis for today. Number one, that he defeated death and two, he won your resurrection. Let's look at Colossians chapter two for this idea that he defeated death. When I say that he defeated death, what I mean is he's showing that death is not the end of the story. Death is not the end of the story. Resurrected life in God's kingdom, that's the end of the story. He won authority over Satan. And we see this in Colossians chapter two. 
Uh, we're going to pick up in verse 11, but we're really going to focus on that last sentence. This is Colossians 2, verse 11. In Jesus, you were cr- circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. You've been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. In verse 13, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, but God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. And this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And this is the effect, verse 15. In this, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities, meaning Satan and demons of evil, He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now this last sentence in verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. I want to add a little bit of color to that. And I listened to a teaching by John uh, Thompson a couple weeks ago, and he described this in a way I had never heard before. He used uh, the terms of Roman conquest to help clarify what Paul's probably getting at, right? Paul is a Roman citizen living in a Romanizing culture, and so they would have used, likely, Roman illustrations. Now, uh, for uh, the Romans, they were, uh, they liked to they liked to steal people's land. That was kind of what they did. They were an empire. They colonized. That was uh, kind of status quo of Roman culture. Now, when they would be at war with neighbors, uh, when they won, they would take the defeated general and all the defeated soldiers, and they would actually march them back to Rome. Here's why. They would put the victorious general in front of a giant parade, and then they would put the victorious soldiers behind him, and then at the caboose of the parade would be the defeated general and the defeated soldiers, and they would march them through town. This was the effect that it had, is that all of the, the Roman citizens, who were just your average Joe, would uh, mock them and deride them and, and basically shame them publicly, but the The reason that these generals would march them through is because they wanted every single Roman citizen to see we won. All these people you've been hearing about are enemies. They lost. They're defeated. You have no reason to fear. The strength, they no longer have any strength at all. Think about the distinction of that. We we read a lot in, in the newspaper. It's not only hearsay. The people you were afraid of, the people your son is off fighting a war for, you now see them in front of you defeated. That was the effect that this, uh, this illustration that Paul's giving us. Paul's literally trying to say, Satan and the spirits of evil were marched before the saints as defeated. They have no strength. They have no power because I conquered them. And we see this super clearly in one sentence in Revelation chapter 1 which you don't need to turn there if you don't want, but it's up on the screen. Jesus himself says this in his resurrected form in Revelation 1. He says, fear not. I am the first, I am the last, and I am the living one. I died. Behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. He's saying, I won. Now, That's the first thing that he does, is he takes the the keys, this image of death in Hades, and he says, I won. Uh, The second thing that he does is he actually, in this, wins your resurrection. Remember, 
God's promises in the Old Testament was to breathe new life, to resurrect you in a new heaven and a new earth through his spirit. And in Jesus's resurrection, the spirit gives new life to Jesus as a representative of you. Jesus is representing all of his followers in this moment, saying, I am the first and you will be like me. He's sharing his resurrection with us. And just to make this super clear, we're gonna look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse three through five. If you jump there with me, 1 Peter chapter one. Peter writes this, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's according to his great mercy that he's caused us to be born again to a living hope. Through what? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We're being called to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It's kept in heaven for you, who through by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter's encouraging the saints to realize Jesus won your resurrection. He's guaranteed your resurrection. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. This inheritance is imperishable. It is undefiled and it's unfading, kept in heaven for you. And that inheritance in one sentence is a new heaven, new earth, and your new resurrected body in the kingdom of God. That is what Peter is saying. And Jesus's resurrection, we can see very clearly, was a turning point in history, right? Jesus was the fulfillment of all of God's promises. But think about, remember Luke 24, his two followers who assumed that nothing had changed? Um, Remember, they're having that conversation after Jesus has actually resurrected, They were shocked. Well, Jesus, if you've resurrected, why hasn't anything changed? They would have expected that everything would be complete at the moment of Jesus' resurrection. He won, right? So why does it feel like nothing's different? So they would have expected everything to happen again at once. New heaven, new earth, resurrection of the saints. Now, if you cast your mind back to all of the Old Testament passages we've been working our way through, one concept that's been really important is this idea of progressive revelation. The idea that God reveals his plan in stages over time. And so Jesus' followers would have been learning that in real time. We thought it was going to happen, but it's a continuing progressive revelation. And we, with the, the wisdom of hindsight, look and see that this is what Jesus is doing, is his promises being fulfilled, working themselves out over time. And this is called, in theological terms, I forgot a slide for this, but if you wanna write this down, it's called inaugurated eschatology. Eschatology means the study of end times. And an inauguration, right? Think of a presidential inauguration. It's someone stepping into office, someone taking power. And so what that term is, inaugurated eschatology, is simply saying the end has begun. The end is here. It's working itself out. And Jesus is inaugurated. He has fulfilled the promises and he stepped into a new authority. If you remember Genesis chapter three, the the imagery of the snake, What this is saying is the snake's head has been cut off. And his body is still writhing around a little bit. He's defeated, but he's still writhing. 
So victory over death, victory over sin, coming of new creation, all of that has been decided. All of it has been secured. It is an inheritance, imperishable, undefiled, waiting for you. And yet we do not see the full results, which leads us really naturally to the final question then. Wait, so what is Jesus doing right now? Remember, Jesus is not dead. And this, if I, if I may, this is like the big kicker. This is, if I hope you hear one thing, remember one thing from our whole time together, it's this, Jesus is alive. Like really alive. Like here, present with everyone who follows him alive. Like working every single day to work out the salvation of his saints alive. Not dead, not stopped 2,000 years ago, but is right now alive. Now, at his resurrection, he ascended to the right hand of his father. And he does, or two things we'll talk about today, is what he's doing right now is he's sending the Holy Spirit and he is interceding for us. Now, the first one we'll do pretty quick. It's this idea that Jesus gives his Holy Spirit and works in partnership with him. So the Holy Spirit is still right now, ongoingly, working to bring life to the dead. He's bringing light to darkness. He is renewing the hearts and the minds of non-believers all around us and calling them to himself. And he is working in you to bring life to death, light to darkness. He is working in you to regenerate your heart, to put his spirit inside of you, to call you to new life. And unfortunately, this sermon is not about the Holy Spirit, so we're not gonna go much farther than that. But I want you to attach... Jesus says, Jesus is right now aliveness with the Holy Spirit. That's why I'm bringing this up. The Holy Spirit's not doing something because Jesus stopped. Jesus is right now working in tandem with the Holy Spirit. And I want us to connect that. Now, the second thing that Jesus does right now is he intercedes for us. And this is really good news because interceding, it means getting involved in someone else's situation on their behalf. So when I say that Jesus is interceding for us, he's getting involved in our situation on our behalf right now because he is alive. And we're gonna look at this in Romans chapter eight. This is possibly my favorite passage in all of scripture. Anytime I come across this, I get fired up. So forgive me if I get a little loud in the next 23 seconds. Paul writes this in Romans 8, verse 33. He says this, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but more than that, he was raised. He is at the right hand of God. He is indeed interceding for us. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, will distress, Will persecution, will famine, will nakedness, will danger, or the sword? No, as it's written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But no, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things in the future to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
This is because Jesus is alive right now, interceding, stepping into your situation on your behalf. This means that you, Christian, cannot, cannot, 0% possibility, you cannot be condemned, period. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing. But I have one question for you. Does it feel like there's something separating you from the love of Christ? I'd ask you to name it if you are able. What in your life feels like it is separating you from the love of Christ? Is it your failings? Is it a situation you're in? Would you name it? Holy Spirit, would you speak to us right now? Would you call us to see where we feel separated from you? What can separate you? Nothing. Neither height, nor depth, nor death, nor life, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Now, do we keep on sinning? Like, of course not, right? We have been freed from sin, so we kill sin. We don't cultivate sin in our lives, but we land on what can separate me. Christian, can your sin separate you from the love of Christ? Can your failings separate you from the love of Christ? Can your addictions separate you from the love of Christ? Can your hardships separate you from the love of Christ? Can your poverty separate you from the love of Christ? No. If I can read this one more time, I am sure neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, anything in all of creation will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Because the living Jesus is interceding for you. That is why the living Jesus is interceding for us. Now, there's one more thing I want to draw our attention to. Neither death nor life will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ. And this is a really strange comfort that Christians get to come to. Me, Trevor Zychek, I will die. As you experience me, this person, I will die. Could be this afternoon on the car ride home. Could be next week. Could be in five years. It could be in 50 years. But I'm going to die. Bad news, you're going to die. I was watching um, this series. It's an old HBO series called Band of Brothers. It's a, a World War II movie. And at one point in this, they were interviewing uh, real-life World War II veterans, and they said that at some point, you just need to realize I'm going to die. And then you put that out of your mind, because that's the only way you can function. I would argue that we have a unique privilege as Christians, because we don't need to put the fact that we're going to die out of our minds. We, in fact, get to live daily acknowledging, I will die. But Jesus is alive. Jesus lives. 
Jesus has died in my place, in my baptism. I have uh, died with him and I've resurrected with him. And so though I will die, I am alive in Christ. Now, how did I, Trevor, get in on this? This is a pretty amazing thing. How did I get in? And how do you get in? Some of us are not yet followers of Jesus. Some of us do not yet have the good news that Jesus has died for you and you will live through him. Our final scripture passage is John chapter 11 in the words of Jesus. Would you turn there with me? This is John chapter 11, verse 25. Jesus is visiting the house of a dead man. A man named Lazarus has just died. And he's speaking to a woman named Mary moments before he resurrects this dead man. And Jesus says this in verse 25. Jesus said to her, quote, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she says to him, Yes, Lord. I believe you are the Christ. You are the Son of God who is coming into the world. This is how we get in. This is how I got in. This is how you got in. If you are not yet in, this is how you get in. You believe. You believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And the good news is you do not earn your way in. You don't kill your sin enough to get in. You don't earn your resurrection, you receive and you trust that Jesus pays your bill, that he is your receipt. He is your statement that the debt is paid in full. Now, if this word believe is unhelpful, you can alternate it with the word trust. Because this is not an academic nod or assent. This is not a statement of doctrine. This is the placing of lifelong trust. Jesus, yes, Lord, I believe, I trust. Again, do you remember the student, student debt illustration? Jesus' resurrection is our receipt. When death wags its head, when Satan threatens us, what do we do? We wave the receipt of Jesus' resurrection. Jesus is alive. He is stepping into my situation on my behalf. He is the proof of victory. And this changes everything. It changes the purpose and the product of our life. It changes how we respond to discomfort and pain, even the threat of death. And it puts joy into suffering. Because I, I, Trevor Zychek, will die. I might die slowly or I might die quickly. I might die by natural cause or I might die by evil men. I might die rich and I might die poor. But Jesus is alive. And Jesus right now is interceding. So what can separate us from the love of Christ? What can separate you from the love of Christ? Nothing. Do you know how I know that? Because he's my receipt. And he lives. I want to do one thing. 
if you would like to place your trust in Jesus, maybe for the millionth time, maybe for the first time, but if you believe, would you read this last sentence with me? Mary's words to her Lord. Would you read this? Yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we believe the record of your life, the record of your death and your resurrection. We believe that you are the Son of God. You are Lord. Thank you for coming into the world. Thank you for giving us all of these promises in Scripture and then fulfilling them and then proving them. Thank you for being alive right now, that you are present in this room, that you've sent your Holy Spirit to convict us of sin and to remind us that it has no hold over us. Thank you that you are here reminding us that nothing can separate us from your love. Nothing can take your promise of resurrection away from us. It is our inheritance in heaven. It is imperishable, undefiled, guarded for us by God and you. Jesus, thank you. Amen.